This weekend, we're wrapping up our Unleashed series. And in this series, we've been talking about what would it take for us to become the church that Christ created us to be, that he died for us to be? Uh, what, would it, what would it take for us to be the kind of church where a community is actually excited to have us in the community? Where community leaders want to partner with us because we figured out how to address the needs of the community. Where marriages are being saved, where families are being put back together, where lives are being transformed because of the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. How do we become that kind of church? And that's what we've been talking about in this series, this Unleashed series. And as I've said, that is a very, very important question because the church is the only organization in society that's redeeming lives. Walmart's not doing it. SAS isn't doing it. Cisco isn't doing it. Lenovo's not doing it. Government certainly can't do it. They can't even fix a pothole. Education's not doing it. The only organization in the world that's redeeming lives is the church. We're the only organization that's actually involved in helping people determine their eternal destiny. That's pretty big. And when that truth, when it gets from here to here, if it ever gets from your head to your heart, I'm telling you, it will make you stand up a little taller. And when you walk into one of our campuses, whether it's here at Raleigh or Morrisville or whether it's at Holly Springs, so you'll realize that you are walking into the organism that's doing the most important work on planet Earth. The church is the hope of the world. So how do we become that kind of church? That's what we've been talking about. Let me just say this. If you're visiting for the very first time this weekend, you picked a great weekend to be here. Because what I'm going to be talking about over the next few minutes has nothing to do with you. You're just our guest. So you can just sit back and relax. You don't have to feel guilty about anything this week. But you are going to discover what Hope Community Church is all about. Over the next few minutes, you're going to discover what makes us tick. In fact, you're going to walk out of here knowing where we're going over the next couple of years as a congregation and what it's going to take for us to get there because this is the weekend we've been building up to. And we're going to commit to what we're going to give to Hope Community Church financially over the next two years. And we've set a goal that we give $42 million over the next two years. And I woke up at 3.20 last Sunday morning, and it hit me as I did the math. Yes, I was a PE major, but I can do math. That is $403,000 every weekend if we're going to hit that $42 million. But we believe that this is what God wants us to do as we continue to reach the triangle and change the world, as we open up that new Apex campus, as we give more locally and globally than we've ever given. We believe that that's what God has called us to do. And uh, I know what some of you are thinking. In fact, some of you have shared that with me, that, Mike, that's going to take a miracle. It's going to take a miracle for that to happen. And just so you know, it is going to take a miracle, but that's okay because you got to understand the underlying presupposition of the Christian faith is that God can do anything he wants to do, and that includes miracles. I mean, think about it. The very first verse in the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, I don't know about you, but to me that falls in the category of a miracle. To think that one day God spoke the world into existence. And if you continue reading the Old Testament, you discover that God did stuff like spoke through a burning bush, parted the Red Sea, dropped manna from heaven. I mean, the message of the Old Testament is pretty simple. All things are possible with God. When you get to the New Testament, it's like second verse, same as the first. The very first book of the, the New Testament is, is the Gospel of Matthew. And the very first thing you read in the Gospel of Matthew is the miraculous birth of Jesus Christ who came to be the Savior of the world. If you continue reading the Gospels, Matthew Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll discover that Jesus was constantly astonishing people with his miracles. After the Gospel, you get to the book of Acts. It's the birth, it's, it's, it's the early church where it begins. And you read that there were signs and wonders and miracles, and they were a pretty common occurrence. And the people, not just in the church, but even the people outside the church, they were in awe of the power of God. 
And over and over through the book of, uh, of Acts, you read of, uh, of stories of times that the supernatural just broke into the human experience and lives and hearts were changed. My point is this. Fundamental, fun foundational to the Christian faith is this. With God, all things are possible. God can do anything he wants to do, but listen carefully. Let me just say, there is a huge difference in accepting that as a theological premise and then proving it to be true in your own life. For example, if I were to ask, how many of you think that anything is possible with God? My guess is most everybody here this weekend would raise their hand. We're just conditioned that way. We're in church. I mean, yeah, God can do anything he wants to do. You know, I have two favorite Christian jokes. One has to do with Baptists. Why don't Baptists believe in premarital sex? Because it will lead to dancing. That's a great joke. Use that anytime you want. <laughs> the other one is this. You know, the little boy that's in Sunday school and the teacher says what's gray and has a fluffy tail and lives in a tree and stores nuts for the winter. And the little boy raises his hand and says, I think it's a squirrel, but I'll say Jesus. See, he's been conditioned, right? He's just been conditioned. All of us are conditioned that way. When we're in church, how many of you think God can do anything? We throw our hands. God can do anything. But let me ask you this. What if I asked you, how many of you are willing to pray risky prayers? How many of you are willing to take steps of faith to prove the supernatural power of God in your personal life? See, that's a big difference. Big difference. And that's what separates the men from the boys. But this is what's interesting. We all know that as Christians, if our lives are really going to change, if we're really going to become the individual that God created us to be, eventually we have to cross that bridge of faith. In other words, this idea of trusting God, this idea of walking by faith, at some point it has to become a very real part of our lives. The problem is for most of us, we're not exactly sure how to make that happen. We're not exactly sure how to get from the logical side of life where everything has to line up, everything has to fit. We're not really sure how to get from the logical side of life to the sometimes illogical side of life of trusting God and walking by faith. Well, thankfully, there's a great story in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Maybe we've read it. Most of us haven't paid much attention to it. But it helps us with this truth. 2 Samuel chapter 12. If you have your Bible, turn there. If you don't have your Bible, it's okay. We'll put the verses up on the screens. But I want to give you a little bit of background. This is a story about King David. I've been doing a lot of study about King David lately. In fact, one of my Christmas messages has to do with King David. Most of us know King David. And we know him because as we're going to see in the Christmas series, God made a promise to David 3,000 years ago, everybody will know you. And if I asked how many people know King David, pretty much everybody would raise their hand. So we're all familiar with him. I mean, we heard about him in Sunday school. He had a lot of courage. You know, this is the guy that killed a lion. He killed a bear. He took on Goliath. He killed Goliath, right? But a lot of people don't know is David was also a Renaissance man. He was a warrior. He was a musician. He was a poet. He was a politician. But more than anything else, David had a huge love for God. There's a statement made about David that's not made about anybody else in the Bible. David was a man after God's own heart. That's not said of anybody else in the Bible. And not only is it said about David once, it's said about him twice. David was a man after God's own heart. He had a huge love for God. But if you know the story of David, you also know that he made a terrible mistake at one point in his life. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. And then he compounded the sin by having her husband, whose name was Uriah, having Uriah killed in this elaborate scheme to cover it all up. And once Uriah was dead, David then took Bathsheba as his wife, and they had a child together. But God disciplined David. And we need to understand that as, as his children. Just like any good father disciplines their child, 
When we are just rebellious and out of control, God is going to discipline us. And it's not necessarily to punish us. It's to drive us back into a relationship with him. So God disciplines David. And he tells David this. David, that child that Bathsheba is carrying, that child's not going to live. That child's not going to survive. And when David heard that, he knew it was because of his sin. And the Bible says that he went into his palace and he lay flat down on the floor. He didn't shave, he didn't eat, he didn't drink, he didn't change his clothes. He wept and he fasted and he prayed for seven days. And all of his assistants, all the governmental aides, they're walking around the hallways of the palace like, what is going on in there? What is up with David? Meanwhile, David is getting, uh, the child is getting weaker and weaker and weaker. And David just stays face down 24-7 until finally the child dies. And David's aides, they get together and they put their heads together and they're talking and they're thinking, man, David, he's a mess. He's been in, he's been in bad shape for days. And he's weak and he's vulnerable and he's fragile right now. And if we go in and we tell him that the baby has died, it may push him right over the edge. He may even take his own life. So that's the situation. That's the background of this story. Let's pick it up. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 19. David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the group. After he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he went to his own house and at his request, they served him food and he ate. In other words, David hears this news, this heartbreaking news that his child has died. He gets up, he showers, he puts on clean clothes. He asks for some food. After he, he, after he eats, he walks over to the temple. He kneels down and prays before God and basically says, God, I know we've been through a rough patch. And I know that you had to discipline me because of my sin and because of my behavior. But God, I want you to know something. I still love you. God, I want you to know I still trust you. And when he finishes his time before God, he just resumes a normal life. He goes back and hangs out with the family. He returns to the Oval Office. You know, he hits the gym. He updates his fantasy football team, right? And his aides are just watching this, and they are totally perplexed. So it says in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 21, his attendants asked him, why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. I mean, David, could you explain your irrational behavior? What is going on between your ears? What are you thinking? And I want you to see David's response in verse 22. He answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows? Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. In other words, even though, even though David knew what God had predicted was going to happen to his child as a result of his sin, even though David knew that, David said, you know what? While my child was still alive, while there was still breath in his lung, yeah, I fasted, I prayed. I was thinking, who knows God might be gracious? Who knows God might change his mind? Who knows he may do a miracle? In other words, David said, I had to lean into the possibility that God's power could be brought to bear on this horrible situation. Verse 23, but now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? And then David says this, I will go to him, but he will not return to me. And I wanted you to see these verses because 
These verses really remind us that there are two ways we can live life. We can, we can be negative. We can be defeated. We can always anticipate the worst case scenario. We can look at every situation in life from strictly a human perspective, or we can choose to look at life as David looked at life. We can, we can choose to have faith in a God who has the potential to pull off a miracle at any time, any time he wants, because who knows? Whatever my situation is, God just might be gracious. Who knows? God might just choose to show up and do something supernatural in my life. Now, I'm going to tell you, when I, I was a young adult when I saw this truth for the first time, and when I saw it, I had no idea how quickly God was going to put this truth to the test in the area of faith and trust in my own life because it was only a few months later where it seemed, based on circumstances that were going on in my life, that God was leading me into the ministry. And I remember thinking, this is awful. I mean, this is horrible. This is horrendous. I don't want to be a pastor. There goes my freedom. There goes my fun. There goes any hope for money, you know. There goes life, all the things I want to do. I'm going to wind up in some boring church, which a bunch of old boring Baptist people. And I'm going to have to do pastor stuff, and I'm going to have to be there every weekend. Little did I know, I'm going to have to be there all weekend, every weekend, right? <laughs> but I remember sitting there processing what this was all about once these guys had asked me to be their pastor. And, and, and I, I'll be honest with you, I started thinking about every worst case scenario. And then I remembered this story. And I came in off the ledge, you know, and I thought, well... Who knows, you know? God might be gracious in this whole mess. Who knows? Who knows? The adventure that God wants to take me on, it may be so much better than the adventure I think I want to be on. He might open doors for me that are better than any door I could ever open, and he might use my life in a way that I could never imagine. Who knows? And my next thought was this. There's really only one way to find out. And I remember right where I was when I finally gave in. We had a little house, 2510 Greenbrier Lane, first house we ever bought, backed up the Imperial Highway, biggest dump you've ever seen in your life when we bought it. Had a little planter out in the front. Most of the bricks were loose. I can remember sitting on that planter. It was one of those Southern California days where the fog comes in over the, off the ocean and it just socks you in. And sometimes it can last for weeks or months at a time, right, in June. The June swoon, it was that kind of day. When I said, okay, God, not really what I wanted to do, but we'll try it your way. Who knows, you know? So 34 years ago, I took that step of faith, and I'm still here. Then after about 15 years of pastoring churches, God began to speak to me about starting a new church, not any church, a new kind of church. A church where people could walk in, and maybe they didn't know anything about God, but maybe they could begin to understand God's love. A church where creativity and relevance and excellence would be integrated into the ministry. A church where people could find a sense of community, maybe a sense of belonging. A church where people actually did what the Bible said a church is supposed to do. A church where people loved one another and served one another and prayed for one another and forgave one another and encouraged one another. A church that actually would make a difference in its community, maybe even the world. 
And I'll never forget, I was sitting at a pastor's conference 22 years ago in Newport Beach, California, when God first laid that on my heart. And I remember my first response, no way. Mm -mm. Right now, life is good. Laura's good. Family's good. Money's good. Kids are in a private school. No way. I don't have a clue how to start a church like that. I don't even know if I have the gifts to start a church like that. And, and I, don't, I won't have any money because I won't have a job. And, and how am I going to support the family? But God just kept bringing me back to these stories, reminding me of David's word. Who knows? God might be gracious. Who knows? It might work. People might find Christ. Who knows? God, God might be gracious and strong, and he may just surprise everybody, even Laura. I mean, there's a great saying behind every successful pastor, there's a wife who's just as shocked as he is. <laughs> and I remember where I was when I finally said, I was driving down Highway 24, heading into Oakland, when I said, you know what? God might just do the supernatural and pull this off. And I often think what I would have missed out on. Look what I would have missed out on if I would have given in to my fears. We started the church, and after finally struggling, God began to bless, and crazy things began to happen, and we were, on the, we were in the fire trap on Chapel Hill Road. And I call it a fire trap. The fire marshal actually showed up one day, and he looked at the building. Thank God he was a Christian. He said, Mike, if I stay, I've got to shut you down. I've got to put a chain on this door. And I said, well, then don't stay. And he left. And he said, would you please hang the door so they swing the right way for children in case there's a fire. I'm like, we'll do that. I don't think we ever did it. But anyway, we, it wasn't a fire, so, you know, don't worry about it. But anyway, we stayed there. And we grew. And we knocked out walls. And we added chairs. And we had no parking. We had 94 parking spaces. And then God built a credit union next door. We parked in it. And we parked on the grass behind it. We parked on the curbs. We parked everywhere. And we had one of those weekends where we literally had to open the doors and people were sitting out in the lobby so they could hear the message because we had run out of room. We had an elder meeting the next night. We're like, what in the world are we going to do? I mean, we barely have enough money to keep the staff paid and keep the doors open. We can't get ahead of the curve. We're never going to be able to buy property, not the way it was going up and carry at that time and build a church. Are you kidding me? And so we decided, well, we just better pray. And we organized a prayer vigil that started at 5 o'clock on a Friday night, and it was to run to 5 o'clock on Saturday night. And we had people sign up and people pray, came to the church and prayed around the clock for 24 hours. And I'll never forget, I was there at 2 in the morning when a guy walked in and said, hey, I know a name of a guy got some property on Buck Jones Road, wants to give it to a church. I'm like, yeah, right. So I took the card. Sunday afternoon after church that weekend, a few of us, we drove over to this property, just a big mound of dirt and weeds. We climbed up on the hill and we held hands and we prayed. And I remember like it was yesterday what I was thinking while we were holding hands and praying. Uh, right here on this piece of property, God, give us this property. Do something supernatural. Do something miraculous. I'm thinking, nobody in his right mind is going to give millions of dollars worth of property to a bunch of redneck people who started a church he doesn't even know. This is stupid. That's why everybody's praying. That's how spiritual I am. You know? <laughs> Great men of faith. But then God reminded me, and I thought, but hey, pfft, who knows? Maybe God will move in Mr. Martin's heart and he'll give us the property. 
Who knows? He might do something supernatural. And if we could load up in our cars, I could take you over here to Bob Evans and I could show you the table where Mr. Martin was sitting with me having breakfast when he reached across the table without any attorneys, without any contracts, without any papers, and shook my hand. He said, it's yours. And I'm giving it to you because you people know how to reach people. <laughs> and now we're talking about $42 million over the next two years. And I didn't come up with that number, by the way. There are people much smarter than me that went through all the process and came up with the number that we were going to need and what they thought we could actually give. And when they came to my office and they gave me that number, I crawled under my desk, got in a fetal position, and started sucking my thumb. <laughs> you know. And then I, I thought, you know what? This isn't our vision. This is God's vision. This is what God has asked us to do. And what he orders, he pays for. And as much as I would love for God just to stop by at night and drop off a pot of gold in the finance office, it's, it's probably not going to happen. But I am open to it. I am open to that, right? Now, here's the cool thing. If it's going to happen, it's going to come through us. Here's the good news. Ready? $42 million. We have the money. We have the money for $42 million. Everything we want to do. Would you let God know how gracious? Come on, serious. I mean, are you serious, people? We got the money. It's in our bank accounts. We just got to get it out of our bank accounts and be willing to give it. But that's awesome. God's already given it to us, right? We just got to transfer it. That's actually the miracle part. The miracle isn't that we have it. The miracle is that we might do the right thing with it. But who knows? Let me tell you something. As I look back time after time when God has prompted me to do something, my reflex answer has most often been the worst case scenario. But sometimes it's as if God whispers in my ear, but what if it's the best case scenario? And it's ridiculous it's taken me this long to learn, but you know what? This is kind of how I want to live my life. In fact, I love this quote. Attempt something so great for God that it's doomed to failure unless God is in it. Can we say that together? Attempt something so great for God that it's doomed to fail unless God is in it. Let me just tell you, that's where we're going over the next two years. We're going to attempt something so great for God that it's doomed to failure unless God is in it. And every step of the way, we're going to be claiming Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power. Now this is key. That is at work within us. He's going to work through us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And now we've come to the moment of truth, the dreaded commitment card. And I can smell the fear radiating off of some of you. Right? So before you, before you even give it, let me just remind you, who knows what God is going to do in and through your life? Who knows? I know this. I know that God promised this in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, if we trust him with our resources. This is what he said. See if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. Look at this. I will, I will even prevent pests from destroying your crops. You know what that's saying? That's God's way of saying, if you put me first with your finances, I've got your back. 
That's God's way of saying, if you honor me, I'll honor you. But I'm telling you, it takes faith <laughs> to step out and see if God is going to honor his promise. Now's his chance. Now's your chance. Now, in just a second, I'm going to let you come up here, and you're going you're to put your card in this treasure chest. And I, I came up with the idea of a treasure chest because Jesus said, hey, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. So we're going to let you drop your commitment card in that treasure chest in just a minute. Now, if you see people not getting up, that's okay. I, I, Laura and I actually made our commitment online. Maybe people did. If you're visiting, we don't expect you to come up here. You can just, you can just sit here and watch it all unfold. But before we do that, I'm going to give you about two or three minutes, and this is what I want you to pray. Does my commitment reflect my heart? I just want you to pray about that. Maybe you came in playing it safe. Maybe you came in, say, yeah, I'll give that card, but you were going to give God an offering that really didn't cost you anything. But maybe your heart and attitude has changed. So I want you to pray. Maybe you, have, you need to have a, a little discussion with your spouse, you know. And I have never done this before. But I'm just going to tell you guys, I'm counting on you to come through. I'm asking you to join me on this journey. I think it will be incredible. So I'm going to let you pray. Now, if you don't have a card, maybe you didn't get one when you came in or you forgot it, if you would just slip your hand up. We have people that have them. They'll bring you one. But if you're here with your spouse, if you're here by yourself, I want you right now just to pray for a couple of minutes. God, is this what you want me to do? Don't give a gift that costs you nothing. Give a gift where you're trusting God to resupply. Give, even if it's a widow's mite. But who knows what God is going to do.